Podcast is a calm, reasoned conversation about local issues in Olympia, Washington. Calm and reasoned. Yeah. Uh, calm. Okay. So before we get into tonight's conversation with Maria Flores, who's running for Olympia School Board, we're going to, Danny and I wanted to run through what else you're going to see on your ballot uh, coming up in a few days. So you can use this episode as a guide as you walk through your ballots, along with listening to some of our most recent episodes of interviews with candidates. We're also going to be hosting a ballot party again this year. Uh, it's going to take place again at Three Magnets at the in the Barrel Room, October 25th at 6 p.m. So come on down, bring your ballot, grab a friend who maybe needs some help uh, in the voting process, and uh, we'd love to see you there. And if you can't make it to our ballot party, I just want to encourage everybody who listens to this podcast to hold your own ballot party. You're automatically qualified. You're officially Olympia Standard qualified to be a ballot party host if you're listening to me say this because you are obviously somebody that cares about Olympia politics to the point where you are seeking us out. And you can help your friends who may not be as interested or as knowledgeable as you and help walk them through their ballot in a very social event. And we'll have some tips about how running a ballot party, how, how you can run a ballot party on our website. Yep, at theolympiastandard.com. Right up at the top, it'll say ballot party. So, so what's on the ballot, Emmett? 12 advisory votes. Oh, wow, 12 advisory votes. Um, who cares about advisory votes? You really shouldn't care about advisory votes. <laughs> so you have this long list of advisory votes uh, on your ballot. I didn't even look at what individually they are because um, you're not actually voting on anything. This is just an expensive poll for the state. I would encourage people to leave them blank, but you can also carefully consider each one or you can just fill in the bubble that says maintained. And if you're doing that, you're just going to give a big, big middle finger to Tim Iman. Even better, you can call your legislator and ask them to support the idea of getting rid of these pointless and expensive votes. So speaking of Tim Iman, guess who's back again this year? Who's back again this year? Tim Iman with the <laughs> right. initiative 976 with $30 car tab fees. All right. Well, it seems that court cases and chair thievery can't keep him <laughs> away from his important work of destroying our ability to fund vital government services. <laughs> and if you haven't heard much about Tim Iman, he is a notorious anti-tax activist in the state, famous for generating and profiting from misleading ballot measures that cripple local and state government. His associates are currently facing fines up to $1 million for shady campaign finances. And when we say shady campaign finances, we literally mean funneling kickbacks to Tim Iman. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, and when you have a spare minute, just just Google Iman, E-Y-M-A-N, and chair for an interesting story on um, the downfall of Tim Iman. Such an interesting story. <laughs> such an interesting story that I'm literally literally allowing everybody to think about the city of Lacey at this point. 
right, yeah, you're just going to have to Google that one to figure out what we're talking about. Um, so this year on the ballot, we have Initiative 976, uh, which will limit car tab fees to $30. This is Iman's seventh try to limit car tabs. This is the uh, the excise tax that is on vehicles. Previous, previous attempts have failed to get enough signatures, they failed to get enough votes, or they have failed a challenge in court. 20 years ago, his first try was in 1999 with, with I-695, which was approved by the voters but declared invalid, invalid by the court because it was not limited to one topic. Pretty basic initiative law. The legislature and the governor turned around and approved the initiative on their own, which, was def- which had devastating impacts to transit and ferry services. In our own community, inner city transit was forced to cut routes and services. Since then, voters have approved new local taxes on their own through the Transportation Benefit District or regional transit authorities. Um, an example with that would be Sound Transit up north uh, approving taxes on uh, large infrastructure projects and expansions. Uh, and down here in Olympia, we approved a Transportation Benefit di- Benefit District where we pay an extra $40 on our, on our car tabs to pay for transportation upgrades in Olympia. So what happens if we lose this revenue? Statewide, we'll lose funding for transit, transportation upgrades, including our many poorly rated bridges, and safety initiatives. We'll lose the transportation benefit district funding that was also approved by local voters. Yeah. So Iman is trying to, once again, roll back really, really important revenue for the state and for local government. And while we do generally try to share um, more balance on uh, what you can or cannot, you know, how, how you could or maybe not vote on on things, this one, we, we do recommend that you vote no on Initiative 976. This is going to be really, really bad for Washington and for Olympia. So moving down your ballot, on, you'll now see Referendum 88, which is, relates to affirmative action. In the last legislative session, the legislature approved Initiative 1000, which is now being challenged and put to the voters as Referendum 88. So this referendum is about affirmative action, uh, promoting outreach and recruitment to people often disenfranchised in our society. That includes veterans, women, minorities, and others. And this this referendum would align Washington with 42 other states that already have these policies in place. Affirmative action would include, for example, recruitment, hiring, training, promotion, outreach, setting and achieving goals and timetables, and other measures to increase diversity. And that's a direct quote from the, from the voter's guide right there. Um, it does not allow the state to establish quotas. So you need to, it, it, will, it does not allow, you know, you must hire X amount of people of right. color. That is not part of this initiative. And also uh, somebody who is less qualified uh, would not be able to be hired over somebody that is more qualified based on their identity alone. A major point of debate in this initiative seems to be around how it treats veteran status, and people disagree on exactly the impact the initiative would have. Neither side seems to want to be want to do away, though, with veteran preference. Yeah. And so uh, we've we've given the advice in previous years uh, with this podcast that initiatives are rarely perfect and can often be improved by the legislature. So keep that in mind when you vote on this referendum. And also keep in mind that oftentimes these referendums initiatives, when they when they switch when they switch names like that, it's often hard to keep track of what you're voting on. So just a reminder that a yes vote on this referendum is for Washington State to allow affirmative action. Yep, 
not to undo what the legislature is trying to do. All right. Um, we also have Resolution 8200. This has to do with legislative powers in times of an emergency. This is a constitutional amendment that adds, quote, catastrophic incidents to the list of emergencies that would allow the legislature to take action to ensure state and local governmental operations. Currently, this there, this is a there is a uh, constitutional amendment that allows the legislature to take these actions, but it only applies to emergencies that result from enemy attack. Quotes. Yeah. So catastrophic incidents include those that, and this is a direct quote from the. Uh, the resolution results in extraordinary levels of mass casualties, damage or disruption severely affecting the population, infrastructure, environment, economy, or other government functions. And everybody's going to be very surprised when I say this, but this joint resolution actually has a fascinating history. So the original legislation that this resolution would amend was written in the early 1960s when Washington's largest perceived threat was an invasion by the Russians or a nuclear strike. So today, emergency planning around a Cascadia event is bringing that threat into pretty stark contrast. We're not worried about the Russians. We're not, I mean, really worried about nuclear strikes, but we are worried about a Cascadia earthquake. So working in county government for the last nine months, uh, the amount of work we've been doing around emergency planning and continuity of operations is staggering. So it doesn't surprise me when I saw it, when I really dug into this, it doesn't surprise me that the legislature too is thinking about this stuff. Yeah. So those in support say that the state is not prepared for disaster. Those opposed say that a catastrophe nor the response is sufficiently defined. It did pass in the legislature with 77% approval from the Senate and 93% approval from the House. So there is bipartisan support in the legislature for this. The most fascinating part for me about this joint resolution is exactly what kind of powers this gives the legislature if shit really does start to go bad. If we do have a Cascadia event and society starts literally breaking down, it essentially blows a big hole in our state constitution during an emergency, giving the legislature the power to ignore previous constitutional pr protections, like where the seat of government is. I mean, the seat of government could move from Olympia if Olympia is un uninhabitable. How membership and quorum in the legislature is determined if the legislature simply isn't full of living people. I mean, how do oh they reconstitute the- Oh my gosh, you're getting the, really dark. <laughs> it, this, this is part of my life now. <laughs> <laughs> no, if the if the legislators can't come and legislate, if they have to take care of their families, if they leave the area, yeah, and not just the legislature, but how um, how bills are passed, and also, I mean, this isn't just the legislature; they will be in charge of also filling vacancies and in state and county offices. This is pretty <laughs> wide ranging. So, you know, <laughs> on one side there is government has to function in the event of a catastrophe. The other side of this is incomplete apocalypse. Do you trust the government to do that? Right? Or do we still need a government <laughs> when we're sliding into the ocean? <laughs> so, just some things to consider. <laughs> and uh, finally on the ballot, there's also a local proposition, Proposition 1, which is funding for 911. We currently pay one-tenth of 1% 1 in sales tax to fund emergency communication systems. This proposal will double that and add an additional one-tenth of 1% 1 to the sales tax. Other regional emergency responders use digital systems, meaning there is no way for Thurston County to tie into their systems. We literally cannot talk to each other because we are using an outdated analog system. 
So as you can imagine, large-scale emergencies, such as what we discussed in the last (laughs) ballot measure, uh, require communication across county lines. For example, during the Amtrak derailment that shut down Interstate 5, our responders were literally passing notes to make sure they could communicate with Pierce County and the and JBLM response units. Joint Base Lewis McCord. <laughs> Thanks for defining that. Acronym. You're welcome. <laughs> so the current analog system is independent of the phone system, which was installed in 1978, with the last upgrade occurring over 10 years ago. Parts for the system are no longer readily available. So the current 40-year-old analog system leaves areas of the county without radio coverage. Responders cannot easily radio neighboring counties and sometimes even with each other. Funds generated by Proposition 1 must be used for the 911 system. By law, these funds cannot be diverted to other services. A board of local officials provides oversight and and accountability for these costs. So, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to support this, obviously. And in the voter's guide, there is not a single statement opposed to it. Not even Glenn Morgan showed his face to oppose this tax measure. So oh, there you go. <laughs> there's some uh, those. That's what you're going to see on your ballot. Um, and like we said, we're ha- we're hosting a ballot party on October 25th at Three Magnets at 6 p.m. If you want to come and chat in person among friends and fill out our ballots together. And look at theolympiastandard.com for information about how to host your own ballot party. This will be our final candidate interview for election season, and we welcome Maria Flores, candidate for the Olympia School Board, onto the show. Her opponent, Heath Howerton, politely declined to participate, so we have just Maria with us today. So, Maria, please take a moment and tell us about yourself. Okay. Well, thanks for having me, Danny and Emmett. Um, I am an educator and a policy leader and a parent. If you've seen my signs, that's on the top of them. But I say that because those are kind of the lenses that I approach this work with. So about me as a person, um, I've devoted my life to public education. And that's because public education saved my life. I grew up in really extreme poverty and was homeless multiple times when I was young due to domestic violence. And it was my school that saw me for who I was and met my family's needs and my needs and was able to Uh, wrap around us and support and help me excel. So first my family to go to college. After college, you know, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, And then I just something kept tugging me back to teaching. And I that's when I decided, you know, I, I need to be a teacher. So I taught for three years. I taught second grade and fourth grade at Seahi Community School on the Navajo Nation. And then I taught eighth grade, um, chemistry, algebra, and physics at Fort Wingate, um, which was a boarding school, like the old boarding schools. I loved teaching. I loved closing my kids' gaps, but um, I could only affect the kids in my classroom, and then they would leave, and it was just by chance who they would get in their next classroom in a really system not designed to meet their needs. So as much as I love teaching, that's when I kind of made the shift into becoming, um, focusing on education policy. And I've been doing that the last 13 years. So I'm from Washington. And so when I moved back home, that was the way I wanted to go. I got my MPA. I worked in the governor's office for a while as an ombudsman. And then I've been working at the superintendent of public instruction. Some of the major shifts that have happened the last 10 years, I've had my fingers in. So last bit is I'm a parent. So my son um, attends Olympia schools and goes to Olympia High School 
with all that education background, just navigating this as a parent is a totally different thing, being a consumer of public ed and then trying to figure out how to get him what he needs in the system. So that's me. That's a high level me. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So moving into um, our not policy question. Okay. So middle school is notoriously known as the worst years in, of an adolescent's life. In the process of growing from an, a child to an adult, what was your worst year in school? That's a good one. Um, hmm. Middle school wasn't my worst years, actually, and high school wasn't, but all of elementary school. I mean, so I started kindergarten. That's when we were homeless after my parents divorced, right? And then we were growing up in San Diego at that time. Um, we moved not even every year. I mean, multiple times during the year, just trying to be safe from my dad and my mother is disabled and um, gets Social Security. So, you know, every time rent was increased or we couldn't sleep on someone's floor anymore, we had to move. So all through elementary school, it was just really unstable. It's funny, though, because that was also magical in my mind. Like, I remember, you know, when you're in poverty, you don't you don't, don't totally understand what's happening. Um, at least that was my experience. I mean, I knew things were different and I knew that it was scary. But it was also when I got kind of hooked on learning and I was learning to read and it, there was just so many like evocative memories that I had, those were all school related because that was, I mean, when I said it was my safe place, it really was. But by middle school, I mean, middle school is when things started to stabilize. We moved up to Washington in fourth grade and um, that's kind of when I hit my groove. It's when the teachers kind of saw me and, you know, started putting me in kind of advanced coursework and I, it was different in middle school. I think as a little kid, I just, I hid a lot. I was one of those little kids who really tried to please and read voraciously and just wanted so badly to be good and have my teachers see me as good. So um, yeah, elementary school was hard. I remember hiding from going to recess. I remember, you know, just public shaming when you're getting free lunch or you're going home over the weekend and you don't have any food. And it just, I think about it now as, as a grown up and now that this is my job, but there was constant moments where I was just butting against other people's privilege and realizing, hey, it's different for me. Why is it so different and hard? So, yeah. yeah. Th thanks for sharing that. Yeah. We definitely, you know, I, when, when I think we thought of this question, it was intended to be a lighthearted, like, oh, oh sorry. You know, no, 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 no. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really good, uh, well, it's really good to talk about like yeah. how people's experiences are, are different. You know, we were, we were thinking it'd be a lighthearted, like, oh, social awkwardness going through puberty kind of a question. But yeah. obviously, you know, those, the people have different experiences growing up and that's important to talk about. Yeah. Well, and if yeah. you want a little bit of lightheartedness, by the time I got to middle school, it was the height of like 90s rap. My persona was a chola, you know, like a Mexican gangster girl. And so my teachers, all my middle school teachers kind of got together and they must have had a talk about me because, you know, I would try to feel like very hard and very tough right in the in the hallways. But I was in orchestra and an advanced English class and they let me they let me come in late. Like they let me come in late to class to keep my persona in check. <laughs> they let me keep my, so I didn't carry books in the hall. Like my English books were in the English class, my cellos in the orchestra room. I remember one teacher being like, you can do this right now, but you're really smart. Like they just, I don't know. It's, it's so one you, of those weird things, but you know, so super you're hard. Like too cool for school, but not really. Right. Yeah. But you know, like I had the press dickies and like flannel shirts, all of that. It was just all, you know, part of that time in the nineties. But I'm grateful that, you know, they let me like come in and then practice my, you know, 
Mozart quartets in my, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I mean. I mean, they really saw me and I, I can't imagine if they had just seen like the chola and stopped at that. Great. Thank you. All right. So getting more into um, how you will be as a leader on the Olympia school board. Um, This is a election for, um, Schools. Not everybody has children in schools. Mm-hmm. So for, for those folks uh, who aren't, don't engage with the Olympia school system at all, why should they care who serves on the board? That's a good question. Um, I just got asked this the other day by um, someone, an older gentleman who lives in Olympia, and his kids have made it through school. So the thing in Washington is that it's local control state as far as schools go. Everything is decided locally. I mean, we pass laws in the legislature, but the implementation, all of that is local. And when I was talking to him about this, I mean, he felt like he'd already paid his taxes and he was done. And I had to kind of unpeel it with him to say, you know, don't you want the people around you to be educated? Don't you want an educated populace? Don't you want to have people who, you know, are in the jobs and working around you who are educated? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's important. But the thing that I think got him to get it and I think why, why people should care is that schools are these transformative places. Um, whether you have kids in there or not, you have some link to public education through your family, through the people you employ. Schools make or break our community, in my mind. Um, How closely we support our children and sort of create that space for children to grow says a lot about who you are and how the community is. And I've lived in all sorts of places and different school systems where the system didn't feel like it valued all students. And the thing that's good in Olympia is that We're incredibly inclusive in our schools. We have all these supports and all these different school models because we we know that we got to meet every kid where they're at. Um, I don't know if I really answered that all the way, but I mean, the reason to care is that we all have children in our lives and we all have to make this space for children to be able to grow up and be successful. So that's the easy soundbite for it. All right. Yeah. So this question is going to be with a lot of context. Okay. So just... It's for the listeners so that they know what we're talking about. Yeah, so just (laughs) sit back and relax. Okay. We'll get around to the question in a few minutes. So last year on episode 15, we sat down with Patrick Murphy, the superintendent of the Olympia School District, and school board member Joellen Wilhelm. We dove into how Olympia is being treated by the state's response to the McCleary Court decision, which determined that the state was not fulfilling its constitutional (laughs) duty to provide an equitable education to all children. The point of contention was the over-reliance of of local levies to fund education, which creates a disparity in districts that can't afford or don't vote to enact these levies. It turns out that just off the bat, Olympia lost funding in the, in the levy swap. This is because the new rever- revenue that we spent essentially swapped in from a new state tax levy did not replace the money that we were raising from our own levy that went away. While the levy swap was supposed to help students statewide, it decreased funding here. We were also impacted for having more experienced teachers because of the formula state uses to fund school district by their teachers' experience. Question time. Is this still an issue for the district? And what should the school district be doing to respond? That's a really good question. It is completely still an issue for the district. And so I'm going to give a little bit of background. So this is a little wonky policy thing about me. I worked on McCleary. So I, in my job, um, staffed the Compensation Technical Working Group and wrote that legislative report where we did the two labor market analyses that proposed the billions of dollars that we were not funding 
basic ed. And those that report was what was cited by the Supreme Court. So this is like one of my areas I know so deep. Um, so we should have just let you fill in all the content. Yeah, yeah I can tell you. I'll give you the citations. Yeah. But I mean, okay, so one thing just to do the setup and then I'll go into Olympia is that, you know, the Supreme Court found in Washington, we have a positive constitutional right to public education and most government rights are negative and orientation is constraining action. This one requires action. And that was one of the things the Supreme Court cited was the proactive requirement that we do this. So what you said was right, Emmett. So it was partially because of the way the levy swapped worked. The biggest deal for Olympia School District is tenure. Um, so our, we don't have a salary allocation model, a salary schedule anymore at the state level. And that's a big problem. What we recommended to the legislature was a salary model that recognized a gaining advanced certification and years of experience. The old salary model was years of experience and um, degrees not certifications uh, aligned to that. The old salary model had this thing called staff mix. So it was like, you know, if you're making a table or a grid and you went down, I've got 16 years of experience and I have a PhD, you had a value. And the value for that salary, whatever it was, was what you got. A little bit of complicated fiscal stuff behind that. But when we gave out the allocations, every school district got pretty close to who they had as far as the base salary. And then they added additional money through the levy. This is where the legislature got it wrong. They're allocating it based on average salary or average, excuse me, tenure. So Olympia has really experienced teachers and we're getting an average from the inexperienced to the experienced teachers. So we're already getting basic ed underfunded just through the allocation method. The other thing in Olympia is that we're going to have to deal with. So we are making it up with levy money and Olympia also had um, additional contracts and um compensation to give them sort of a market rate compensation, which now is being taxed because those additional supplemental contracts are kind of going to fill in the basic ed. And the last bit about it is Olympia didn't get something called regionalization. So when we did all this research, there are regions in the state like Seattle where the cost of living is really high. And so one of the things we talked about was giving sort of a bump for those type of areas. But the problem is when you draw the map, you know, where do you draw the line, right? You're right butting up against um, competing school districts. And Olympia School District did not receive those funds. Um, so it's still really a huge problem. Moving forward, I know the Olympia School District is working with lots of school districts and the School Directors Association to talk about bringing back staff mix and having the state pay their obligation. We are going to be reliant on levies for a little while, which means we're going to have to get a lot of public goodwill to continue to pass levies until the state pays their share that they're required to. So that was a long answer, but I mean... It was yeah. a long question. Well, it's and it was fair. like a whole year of my life. I mean, it's something that comes up all the time. And I think people forget that McCleary is still a thing. It's not fixed. It's not fixed. Yeah. And when I was doing that report, I just, one thing, I had to go to archives to get a mimeographed report. It's called the Miller Report. It was from 1975. Mm -hmm. And they came to almost exactly the same conclusions, adjusted for inflation, that we did in 2011. Every single, we've done like dozens of studies. I remember when we were framing the question for in our previous episode, I specifically cited the fact that we've been through this before. Yeah. yeah. It's like Battlestar Galactica. It's completely like that. Exactly, Danny. <laughs> don't give me a weird look. Right, you don't like Battlestar Galactica. No, no, I don't, I, I don't like obscure references to like oh sci-fi stuff I haven't watched. But it's, it's, it's been an ongoing thing, actually, on the podcast. <laughs> All right. 
Anyways, moving on. So Maria, uh, depression and suicide are on the rise among young people. This can be a result from bullying in schools or on social media, anxiety about the future, poverty and housing instability, family issues, or generally a lack of access to mental health care. Young people spend a significant amount of time in school. What can the Olympia School District do to support the mental health and well-being of students? On my website, I go into a lot of detail, but I'll explain what I'm going to share. Um, there's a concept in education called multi-tiered systems of support. It's like a pyramid. And if you think of the bottom of the pyramid, that's what all students get. And then you go up the pyramid to give more intensive supports to where what the students need. And on my website, I go into detail about us adopting this thing called the Washington Integrated Student Supports Protocol. So that's another thing I worked at on at the state level. But the Integrated Student Supports Protocol is a way to be able to do universal screening for all student needs and do it in a way where you don't have to do a formal referral process. When you're trained in this protocol, everyone, the paraeducator, the bus driver, the teacher, are able to use this to sort of do a needs assessment and identify not only mental health needs, but whether it's food support, you know, anything dealing with poverty in their family, housing. The support protocol basically helps us organize all the supports that we have in the district and make it like Fred Meyers. It's one-stop shopping. So there's sort of a universal screener so that those in need don't need to know how to access the system and formally ask for what they need, that all the folks in the, in the system are able to refer and put students in um, – sort of in that that pyramid of support for what they need. And it makes it so that, you know, it's one-stop shopping like Fred Myers. So that's kind of a formal answer to that. The school district has a lot of supports and a lot of community partnerships. And when I was doing research about this, and just in my experience with my son, having an IEP for... And that's um, an individual education plan for yes, the listeners. Uh, yes. Yeah. And what he's needed to be successful. It's really hard to find the supports. And I do this for a living. So, you know, even navigating the system for me as a person who works at OSPI, who is a teacher, who knows how to say that formal language, like my, you know, I'm having the student who's experiencing suicidal ideation and the depression and the anxiety are affecting their ability to, you know, I am doing a referral for, uh, you know, an evaluation for IEP. You have to use all these words, right? It's really difficult to be able to sort of know what to ask for when you don't know what's in the system. And what I like about the protocol is that it allows you to not have to know the right way to ask or the vocabulary to ask it. It makes every single person sort of a counselor, a referral, a referrer um, when you do the training so that anyone along the way who catches and notices what's happening with a student or with a family is able to sort of link them into the supports they need. The other thing I think that I've been having a lot of discussions with with the young people in my life related to suicide and depression is just identity. It's really difficult right now to be a young person if you're trans, if you're a person of color with some of the hateful rhetoric that's going on. So I've had a lot of my son's friends who are struggling with just existing beyond just other sort of triggers and mental health issues that they're having. Every day feels like a battle. And so I've been trying to kind of coach them through how to how to live in a world that's telling them that some people are saying negative things and telling them that they're hated. For me, also personally, I would just say that, you know, this is an area that I've focused on professionally, but it's also personal to me. So, you know, I've grown up in a lot of trauma and struggled with depression my whole life. And 
knowing what it took to get to resilience and also never having those supports growing up, kind of waiting till I was an adult to really start having those things in place. I mean, I was the outlier in the sense that the way I dealt with all of those stresses was just to put my head down and read a book and put my head down and do school, you know, to try to drown everything out. So I had like a really healthy coping skill um, that was rewarded by society because I just kept getting, you know, academic praise. But my needs were not met. And my sister grew up in the same household and she went kind of the way you would expect uh, someone who grew up in the trauma that we did, she had lots of issues, almost didn't get out of high school. I mean, just completely um, just imploded. It's funny to me, having personally grown up in that sort of situation where so much of that was just chance and it was not, I, I didn't earn it or was more deserving of, of getting out of that trauma and, you know, all those things that I was able to do. And the system didn't see us and provide those things for us. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Feel like I'm a little somber. You guys need to ask like peppy. Like, a, <laughs> sorry, but these are intense things. To talk about. Sorry, questions. no, it's okay. <laughs> Va vaccines, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> vaccines. All right, go for it. That's a happy one. Yeah. So, during the last legislative session, we saw a tightening of the exemptions for some vaccinations. Previously, students could be allowed to attend school if they had a personal exemption for the MMR vaccine, which is simply a personal choice to opt out. Now they must seek a religious or medical exemption or get the shots. And I just want to say MMR, measles, mumps, rubella. Yes. So are there actions that the school, bo that the school board can, should be taking to ensure compliance and support families who haven't met this requirement? Yes. So when, that, when the changes were going through the legislature last session, I was watching everything. And one of the things um, that is interesting about the personal exemption, like you mentioned, is there's just the personal basis for it. And there's the religious exemption and now that is still in place. And then the medical exemption, um, which is still in place. I'm right. Yeah, I think I'm right. I'm looking at yes. you to yes. not. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Because I looked that up just a, a while ago. And the medical exemption makes absolute sense. And there's students who have compromised immune systems and have issues with vaccines. And I can understand the religious exemption. I can understand the, the concept of that. I always have struggled with the personal exemption for myself as a person who, you know, I mentioned my mother's disabled. She has lupus. So she's got this really bad compromised immune system. So for us, we're one of those people who benefit from herd immunity. And if, if, she, if the herd immunity and the whole community goes down, she is exactly in that demographic where, you know, it's going to have serious health consequences. The school district I know is doing an analysis to see which families um, haven't met the compliance yet who are on the personal exemption and reaching out to them to get them to complete the paperwork or to decide if they're going to reapply under the religious or the medical exemption. I know that they're being proactive about it. And I know that at the board level, boards have adopted some policies in the student series around sort of health and, and requirements around health that we could consider strengthening. The thing I'm worried about is just being proactive and kind of engaging the families ahead of time and not having it show happen where, you know, the kids shows up to school and they're like, you can't come in because um, you have you don't have your vaccinations in place. Some of the school districts um, in Seattle that have really high unvaccinated rates have been having a lot of issues with how do I say this uh, misinformation about what vaccines do. I'm a science major. I was a science teacher. 
I think it's also just the school district being able to share Department of Health, you know, vetted research-based medical information, which is accurate and scientific with the community. So people understand, you know, this is vaccines are um, completely safe and necessary and balancing that with people's personal religious beliefs or medical issues. The thing with the board and with the district is that we are required to ensure the safety of all the kids and all the families. And we're also, you know, we have to share actual information, you know, the Department of Health information, all of those things that are publicly available and the law um, with families in a way that helps them understand what they need to do. So, All right. Thank you. All right. <laughs> All right, so this year we are seeing the deployment of technology across the district. Middle and high school students are taking home laptops, and these, are, and these tools have become central to how school is being taught. And so these questions we have here are about privacy and safety. Are there concerns that, that, people, should be, that people should have around student privacy? And if parents are receiving reports on their kids' internet activity, are students allowed to research topics that their parents not, might not be okay with? And then a kind of a secondary question to all this is uh, around safety. Are there, are there safety concerns that need to be considered with children being required to transport expensive mm-hmm. devices to and from school? Well, my son got one of the Chromebooks this year, which... Yep, my um, daughter did too. Yeah, yeah so... My son's got... Yeah. <laughs> and his backpack, you know, now weighs like a, a billion more pounds. But I mean, so um, the thing with... So when I, when he got the Chromebook, I, you know oh, it's high value. I thought as a parent, like, do I have to sign something? Nothing came home that I needed to sign, like an equipment checkout, which... I I got something. You got something? I didn't get anything. I didn't get anything. Well, I was surprised because I was like, (laughs) don't I need to like... Oh, okay. Well, maybe I missed the paperwork, which is a problem for a school board member, but I don't remember signing anything. And it made me feel a little bit worried that, you know, um, everything else, I kind of have to sign away my life. And, you know, he didn't turn in a book last year and they were like the fines around it. Um... So that was surprising to me. I think with the technology levy that they got to provide this, I think it's crucial to do this because it kind of fills the equity gap with kids who don't have laptops at home. Absolutely. But they also don't, there's an expectation now that everyone has Wi-Fi um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, internet access. Nearly all the assignments my son has are on Schoolology or in a Google Doc, right? So that's great in a way, because he can kind of do it anywhere, but it's also a bit, been a bit of struggle as a parent because when he's with grandma and trying to get all of that, there's not like a traditional place for me to have her be able to get in there and access stuff. With the privacy concerns, when they sent the, I did get an email about um, the, fi- the firewall or the security s- stuff that they had put on the Chromebooks. I don't know if you guys got those. I probably um, did. Okay. Well, I got a thing about how they were going to be, that that was installed. And then there, I think that it had, that it was an opt-in if you wanted to be able to access and see what your, what your I, child was. I get weekly reports. I've yeah. got an app on my phone that tells me what my kids. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing where it's, you know, every parent has to decide how they want their levels of privacy and how much they want their, you know, that boundary. So for me, I didn't opt into that. And the reason was because my son and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, what I expect him to do when he's online and sort of how to be responsible and safe and also just how to like consume stuff from the internet and know when stuff is false and all of that and interact Mm -hmm. with all the players out there. And he, I've told him, you know, I'm going to have you at this high standard and I'm going to, but with this is like kind of random checks. Like if I ask to see your you know, browsing history, if I asked to see your cell phone, 
you're going to give it to me um, and I'm just going to check it. Right. So don't ever have anything that you wouldn't be proud and comfortable sharing with me on it. Right. I've never actually done the random check on him because so far I felt pretty confident in how he's used it. That's just my personal relationship with my son. And he's really inquisitive and he really likes to understand these things. His father is much more very involved in monitoring his internet use. Sorry, what were the questions again? So, <laughs> so I, I, it's so about I th- think one of them yeah. was, privacy. One of them was uh, not every parent is as you know, yeah, open-minded and fair. As yeah, well, like what, if, what if a student wanted to research a topic on abortion right. or on you know, well, uh, the way I understand anything that's controversial. Yeah, so I think obviously I believe that students have the right to research and understand the world, right? If they want to research abortion, they should research abortion. They should have that freedom of sort of inquiry and speech. If a parent has a problem with that, that's one of those things that you monitor within your home. And when a kid goes to school, they have access to sort of unrestricted internet or they go to the library. My understanding of the filters is that it's for pornography and like a bunch of things that are sort of universally accepted that we don't want kids having access to this not for controversial subjects, as it should be. I think that students who want to engage and understand an issue and research and get into debate about it should be able to. And I understand that other parents, that really is going to scare them, right? And they have the ability to put those protections in place for their student, just like I allow my, my son to have what makes sense in our family. Every, every family is different. But I do think, you know, one of the benefits of the Internet, I mean, I, I am not a millennial. I'm whatever that border thing is, because like I had an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. It's called a zenial. Zenial, yeah. X. So it's kind of frustrating to me because my son, when he's doing research, it's just like so easy. And it annoys me sometimes because I just remember doing like <laughs> card catalog. Yes. Searches. And, and, and it's great. <laughs> but also it's so easy that, you know, helping him consume it, he'll get stuff. I mean, he's even, one time he was trying to write a report and he had all these citations. I'm like, what is this? And he's like, well, it says, right. I'm like, James, everything on the internet is not, you know, real, right? Like, and trying to, it's been actually good because then we're getting into looking for source documents, trying to find out, you know, what is this? Is it reliable? And it's made him a better student, you know, and it's really preparing him for college because he kind of has that freedom to find things and then find out like, this seems really unreasonable or really not supported. So, we always like to ask uh, emotional intelligence questions here. Okay. This so, is the last uh, one. This okay. is the last, last one. <laughs> so tell us about a time when you expanded your understanding of an issue when your previous point of view might have been too narrow. And what did you do with that broader understanding? Oh, geez. That's a good one. Um, we ask good questions here. Yeah, I know you so do. Very, Just very, listen uh, to your podcast. This is a variation on the uh, tell us <laughs> um, when you were wrong. Tell me when I'm wrong. Well, no, this is not a tell us. It's a tell us like when you're when a, broad, when a broader understanding helped you. Um, I grew up, like I mentioned, like in a single mom household, you know, um, a lot of trauma. My mom was like a hippie from the 60s, you know, very active in the American Indian movement, all these things that she did. And so... The discourse at home was very much about like, it was very political and understanding politics. And she made us watch, every night she made us watch the news. Like even when we were in a shelter, we watched the news. Like it was as little kids, right? We were always supposed to engage. It's like, this is the price you pay. You have to watch, you have to understand. And we'd talk about it. It was just this value she had. And she always had newspapers or things, you know, I'm having those be things that were always around me. So I was constantly being given information and talk to like I was an adult from when I was little. 
that was kind of insulated way of being, you know, so it took a while before I realized that not everyone grew up that way. And I had like kind of a special existence and a special relationship with my mom, having that kind of talking and content. And like, I'm really grateful for it now that she engaged me like that. But when I was, when I went into college and I went to Whitman, I was a politics major and environmental studies major, combined major. And I'm in my politics classes and I am just like on fire, you know, like, in high school, I was in Junior Statesman of America and all the, you know, such a nerd, like so political, so ready to like the issues and assuming that everyone had the same background understanding, right? I, I encountered a lot of people who hadn't grown up like me. And I don't want to say this in a negative way, but they had been insulated in a different way and that they never had to be political or think about their their life because they kind of grew up in some privilege. Like they, you know, they were wealthy. Whitman's a really expensive private school. I was there on a big scholarship and they just were in this place where they had never considered these things. And my first reaction against them was just anger and I did not behave well. I mean, I got into like, when I say I don't behave well, you know, it was my personal mission to like prove them wrong when we were debating in class. Like I was very, you know. That's just like a late teens, early 20s. Right. I mean, it is that. But I mean, it was like, it came from this place. Yeah. I was just so incensed. I'm like, how can you be at this point? And you're a politics major and you don't understand these things, right? I had this righteous anger and I don't think that it was productive. And it took me a while to realize that, you know, no one understood me underneath, like what was the interest underneath what my anger was showing. And it just was alienating me from some of my peers that I was kind of debating with. I, the thing that kind of peeled it back for me was doing a little bit of mediation training and just learning more about people when they're angry or they're passionate, how to get down to what's underneath it, the interest. And so then being like, what's my interest? And like, you know, justice, a just world, like these things, they're these big values I had. And then trying to be in class different and being like, you know, talking from the value and in interest place versus condemning them for their lack of knowledge <laughs> type of place. And then we could talk and then I could figure out what their interests were. And it, it was a lot, it was a lot easier to get into those places with them without my anger. I still have the anger. I've gotten really good at being a, having a poker face and like, you know, and testifying in the legislature, you know, like I have to help people get there for the bill that we're doing that's going to help students. So, you know, I have to choose my arguments now and do research. So it's like they need the economic argument. They need the moral argument. They need the data argument. I have to give them what they need to be able to receive what the message that I'm giving them. And my old college self would have been like, you're selling out and you're not, you know, staying true to your values. I'm like, I am staying true to my values. I am. The values are what drive me, but I'm helping people get what they need to understand the issue and to get there. Right. So I've done a lot of mediation training. I was an ombudsman. And those kind of skills, have, I think, are going to help me on the board because, you know, people get very passionate and they have a lot of things driving what's what they're saying. And there is a place where we can get to what's underneath and the interest and kind of get to a not always a common ground, but an understanding of each other. So I hope that answers the question. I mean, I don't want to sure. make myself seem like I was so crazy and revolutionary. It's just it was I, my interest. So reframing it, my interest was, you know, understanding and, and justice and my values were not being met in my coursework where my colleagues did not have the same interest. So yeah. there you go. So no, that reframing great. language. Yeah. 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 Oh, and I think it's a, the perfect way to close out the interview in this episode. So thank you so much for coming thank on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay.
Uh, this has been the Olympia Standard. Any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, you can reach us at theolympiastandard at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook at The Oli Standard and on Twitter at The, Olymp- at the Oli Standard as well. And we also sometimes hang out on the Olympia subreddit where you can find these episodes posted and comment on them. You just have to <laughs> guess our usernames. <laughs> we are produced by the two gentlemen behind Olympia Pop Rocks. Uh, Jemmy Joe does all the hard labor of putting the episodes together and his best friend, Guire McGuire, did our music. You can support them by going to olympiapoprocks.com and buying some swag. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Good night. <laughs>